Hello, hello, everybody, whoever's listening, all four of you at this point, um, for our fourth episode. My name is Paige Agrella. And I'm Brittany Porter. And this well, is the Elite Squad, Squad Pod. Pod. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried to do it at the same time as you. I'm so bad at intros. We're, it's funny because I feel like, again, we're not, it's like, we're not there yet where we know we don't really have an audience to speak to. <laughs> I know. I'm like, hey, guys, how are you? You're all amazing. Thanks so much for being here, guys. So this is episode four. This is the best one so far. I, yes. Away and above. I honestly forgot that I did like SVU. Like the first three episodes, I was like, huh, this is kind of rough. Then I watched this one. and I was like, oh, yeah, this is why I was obsessed in college and then most of my 20s. Well, today we're talking about season one, episode four, Steria. Directed by Richard Dobbs and original air date, October 11th, 1999. Oh, and by the time this airs, it will not be close to Paige's birthday, but tomorrow in real time is Paige's birthday. So in honor of your birthday, I want to celebrate the Sagittarius's of SVU, and that's Michelle Hurd, Monique Jeffries, and Erin Broderick, Maureen Stabler. Oh my god! I our should two Sagittarius queens. Oh my god, our two most difficult people at the right now <laughs> as we speak too. Oh my, I should have known Michelle Herb was Sagittarius. There's a lot of Aries on the cast. I had to comb through a lot of Aries. No, who's an Aries? Like everybody, I'm trying, I'm trying <gasps> to remember. I think Chris Maloney is an Aries. Okay, is that he? tracks. That tracks. I should look that up. I don't know why. That makes sense that he would be an Aries. Ugh, I hope Mariska Hardigay isn't an Aries. No, I think she's a Taurus or like a, a Capricorn. Oh my gosh. If she were a Taurus, that would make so much sense. There's only one cancer and it's fucking Dean Cassidy. Oh! Like, <laughs> but that's like still good. He he's is cute. like a He's a good person. He's just frustrating. <laughs> he's just a little... Well, he does have like one very good moment this episode and that's it i've already forgotten it we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there um so opening scene we open on a very i'm like oh this will be a light note at the stabler dinner table and maureen is boring everyone with stories about school school gossip um and her main story is that one of her friends has her quote navel pierced okay boomer maureen so kathy goes well you're not getting that. And Maureen goes, you should hear what so-and-so got pierced. Which I thought her delivery was actually really funny for the actress. I actually kind of giggled. I was like, <laughs> you should hear what so-and-so got pierced. So Kathy tells Maureen to shut up and she turns to Kathleen and asks her what's going on in her life. So Kathleen is a huge bummer and she tells the family dinner table in front of her young siblings um, that her friend is pregnant. Her school friend is pregnant and she is quitting school. And then afterwards, she doesn't even give anyone a moment to react. She gets up and leaves. She just gets up and runs up from a room. And Stabler and Kathy just kind of sit there like, okay. Like, I thought based on Kathleen's reaction, I was like, is there going to be a subplot where the teacher raped this girl? Because I, I like it was such a dramatic reaction, which I know it's a dramatic situation. But Kathleen, it's not happening to you. She's 12. <laughs> <laughs> so... So L, it switches to camera pan, switches to Elliot and Kathy. Kathy, once again, does not give two shits about anything that's happening in the world. <laughs> <laughs> She's always, she hears this horrible news and then she goes right back to sleep or right back to cooking dinner or fishing a dead turtle out of the 
washing machine or whatever Dickie did. But <laughs> Elliot is <laughs> laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, contemplating life. And uh, then I believe he gets a call as he's contemplating. Um, and it's so, <laughs> so that he can go do his job, which Kathy obviously hates. Dun dun. Dun dun. We're in Times Square. Oh. I forgot to read the title card, so I was like, where are we? Uh, we are in Times Square, and Benson and Stabler wander onto a crime scene, and they are greeted by a very 90s-looking Italian cop. This is Officer D'Angelo, and he informs them a little bit about the scene, lets them know a rookie was the first on the case, and he ran off to puke. Which... I don't think it was a very... I mean, it's gross when you think about the grand scheme of humans killing one another, but it wasn't gross compared to... Things I've even read about that haven't been on TV. I've watched a lot of CSI and I'm like, you think this is gross? Right. (laughs) Rookie. So Officer D'Angelo is just like a super New Yorker. He's like, yeah, some looky-loos found the body. They had their tour guide book and they were walking around. They saw Times Square and then they found the stub body. And I was like, are looky-loos tourists? I think they were supposed to be tourists because I know he called them looky-loos and then he was like, yeah, they were all upset after they found a dead body. I'm like, well, if they were proper looky-loos, they would have been excited. So I think they were probably tourists. <laughs> looky-loos. Looky-loos. Like, yeah, they found the dead whore. Which, wow. Right. And so Benson says, how do you know she's a prostitute? And D'Angelo, he says, eventually you get to a point where you can just smell them. Ew! I will say at this point, I now refer to him as Officer Asshole throughout the rest of my notes. So that is who I will be referring to. Because this guy <laughs> is awful. <laughs> Why can't Lim and L show up to one crime scene where the victim is treated respectfully? Nope, not here. So Olivia's like, hey, why don't you go away? <laughs> Yeah, go. But it's noted that she's a young black woman and she has a plastic bag overhead and she is indeed wearing skimpy clothes. She's wearing what looks to be like a bra top, a bralette, as we would refer to it now, and a short skirt. And the crime scene med says that he thinks that the victim is likely a prostitute um, and that she probably brought a John, quote unquote, back there, which is allegedly a back alley uh, in Times Square. And, um, that the John most likely went crazy and asphyxiated, asphyxiated her with a bag. Also, she's um, sustained a few blows to the head, and he is unable to tell them whether the bashes to the head or the asphyxiation killed her. He is, does not know at this point. Right. And, he's, and because her skirt, this is the only reason why they called sex crimes. Uh, her skirt was hiked up past her, her bottom. So we decided to call sex crimes because it seems like something you guys would handle when a skirt's hiked up that high. Um, and also, there is a partial footprint. Yes, there are footprints everywhere. Apparently, I think this might be some sort of job site because I think they said a 60-man work crew was there, but only one set had blood in it. So that's the one that they've like taken pictures of and are collecting as evidence. Uh, so Dan- D'Angelo finds his way back. He was only gone for two seconds. And he makes a joke um, while they're discussing these details and says kind of to the effect of, can I get a separate copy of those fingerprints for our bulletin board? Which, again, I'm an idiot. And I thought that was kind of like, I mean, well, yeah, like, wouldn't you need a separate set of prints if you're going to be contemplating the case? But apparently Liv and L know better. And they kind of stare at him for a second. And he goes, hey, what? She's NHI. And then Liv and L just go like, <gasps> because that means apparently no humans involved. So Olivia politely suggests he should retire. And I agree. I agree, because you seem mad to be here. Dun-dun! Dun-dun! 
we're at the station and the fucking team. Typical hustle and bustle. And of course, my favorite line. What do we got? What do we got? Yep. Cragen's in here. No food in sight that I've noticed. Did you notice any food in Cragen's mouth? Not this episode. No, not until a little later, but none of his regular, we don't have any donuts and we don't have any red vines. So, okay. Nope. Already weeding out that theme. <laughs> um, so everyone assumes that the victim, well, they know that she's a teenager and they basically assume that she's still a prostitute. Doesn't matter. And they wonder if she might be new to the streets, uh, given that she is so young. And Cragen, kind of the whole scene is just them. He, he wants them to go talk to other prostitutes uh, to potentially get some information on this girl that no one recognizes. Yes. Kraken also notes that this sounds like a, a similar case homicide worked. Um, a sex worker named Carmel was murdered in a similar way. Okay. Yes. This is where they mentioned Carmel. Cause I, I remember yes. thinking I'm like, fuck, where did they bring up Carmel for the first time? <laughs> so Kraken is sending everybody on their assignments. Um, Munch says he can't help at the moment. He's off to testify in a case. Ah, Dr. Buzzjoy. So then Monique Jeffries slides in. <laughs> And says to Munch, that's an open and shut case, Munch. Tried to blow it with your insane rambling, which is true. Don't blow it with your insane rambling. <laughs> and he almost does, but we'll get there. <laughs> and as she's walking away, so she delivers this line. She's walking away. And so the camera, we as Munch stare at Monique Jeffrey's ass. But I'm going to say I mostly stare at it because she has her gun literally positioned right above her bum and i don't know that seems dangerous (laughs) they tell you not to do that in bridesmaids remember when melissa mccarthy is like yeah i know a guy he had like his gun strapped there and he like blew his butthole open oh yeah so monique don't do that um and she goes and so on the way out she goes and stop looking at my ass which like is something cool to say but like what if he hadn't been looking at her ass (laughs) I'm just picturing her and he's like looking at his papers, like fumbling around. She's like, don't look at my butt. And he's like, okay, that would be me. He was. Now, once again, I, before she even said that, I sense some like sexual tension between them. But Uh. then later he says some things that really concern me. And I was like, maybe, maybe not. Cause he's, he's kind of a pig. I can't wait for the day when they stop making munch like this weird, gross misogynist. I'm like, stop. Giving him these lines. This is a beloved character. I don't remember character. him like this. Dun dun. dun, dun. <laughs> so now we're on the streets. That's what I wrote too. I wrote the streets. Oh my God. I wrote on the streets. Sometimes they give us a cross street, but this time it was truly just like, and now we're on the streets. Now we're on the streets. So Olivia and Elliot are going around to speak with um, other sex workers and showing them the victim's picture. Um, a sex worker named Rose says that she did have a man attack her in a similar manner. And then in a very frightening ac- account, we learn that she means it was probably her family members that assaulted her. I had a question about that. And it was basically that they're asking the prostitutes, OK, here's how our, pros- our, our victim was attacked. Has anyone been attacked this violently? And Rose says, I was attacked by a couple of guys like that one time. And so Livia, Livia goes. Did you get a description? Do you know what he looks like? And Rose says, I would have gotten a family photo if I'd left, if I'd bothered to grab one on the way out of home. And I, I butchered that. But that's what I said. I was like, wait. So what? Right. Like, okay. So I was like, is this just kind of a, maybe that was sarcastic and the actress just delivered it like really shittily because like, I could have seen it either way. Like, maybe she was saying like, yeah, I would have grabbed a family photo if I thought of it when I was escaping a rapist. 
I will say this actress typically doesn't do a lot of, I don't know how to say it, like, she's a voice actress primarily. I looked her up. Okay. So well, then she should maybe know. <laughs> yeah, I would have grabbed a family photo album if I thought of it when I left. I was like, because she, yeah, Rose, she, sweetie, do we need to go to your parents' house? Because it was will, kind of. We will go kick the shit out of your dad and bring him down to the station, but I don't know what you mean. Right, because again, officers Porter and Agrella usually assume it's incest, and uh, that's why we couldn't <laughs> oh. be on the force. <laughs> we got fired from the force for fighting off too many dads. So. Elliot and Olivia are just kind of like looking at her and Olivia like quietly slips her a victim services card. Elliot then mentions the garbage bag and another sex worker pipes up and says that that happened to a woman named Lorinda. And they ask where Lorinda ended up. Um, And so the woman says that she's worked with Lorinda all the time. But after the quote unquote sweep of Times Square, um, she lost track of Lorinda. Uh, So the sweep comes up again. And I remember hearing about this. It was kind of the, it was when the New York started to, quote, get better, like during the 90s. Um, and it was basically, and they keep saying it was Giuliani's sweep, but upon further research, um, it was kind of like Giuliani helped get it going more, but it was more like the citywide effort of like, it was like a 10 year effort of like starting to really clean up crime in the city. It was like a zoning thing. So politicians, um, People who own buildings throughout the city started to make it harder for basically establishments to run sex-based shops. And um, they were pushing it out of Times Square and making it more what it is today. So I have a question to you as a New Yorker. I, I feel like in a lot of media, sex workers are portrayed specifically in New York City as kind of like being on street corners in like high heels, fishnets, like a teeny tiny skirt and like, I don't know, like a little crop top or something do you actually see that around or is that just kind of like the movies and tv that for me now just for everybody i moved here in 2014 um i've never seen anything like that so of course by 2014 we had things like you know the internet (laughs) namely to for sex workers to work from so i've never seen that um so i think by the time i got here especially um, all that was had kind of taken to behind closed doors. So you're working off of um, Craigslist. You're working off of, I don't think OnlyFans was around back then, but I think it was pretty much all <laughs> That's internet. That's pretty recent, yeah. Yeah, I was like, I've heard about, I heard about OnlyFans starting in like 2019. But no, so I've never seen, especially the areas where they're looking. I mean, Times Square is not, I would not call it upper crust, but it's in a nicer, it's, it's, it's like, it's entertainment. Touristy. It's touristy. So it's highly patrolled. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I've only ever seen it portrayed in the media, so. And they do, like, whoop it up. Because, like, even oh, now. I'm sure. So they tell her, they're, they don't know where Lorinda is, but she might be on 9th Avenue. Uh, she might be kind of over there. Um, and so that's where they send Olivia and Elliot next. They head over to 9th Avenue, um, and apparently that's where now the transgender uh, sex worker population is inhabiting. That's like is their this turf. the meatpacking district? Yeah, that's supposed to be like around meatpacking or Chelsea area. So maybe it is supposed to be more meatpacking. I know they end up down there later because they mentioned Gansevoort, which is meatpacking. Okay. Um, but yeah, so they're on Ninth Ninth Avenue, um, and where they are in particular is like basically on a bridge, which I've never seen. Um, and they're talking to three transgender sex workers. 
And they tell the E&L, Liv and Elliot, that after the sweep that the transgender sex workers move down to this particular area that they're in, and they essentially kicked out the uh, biologically female sex workers. There was a turf war. And then one of them says they bitch slapped Lorinda. Yes, Lorinda. Apparently Lorinda. Because <laughs> they're like, well, we're looking for Lorinda. And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, Lorinda tried to sneak in and pretend to be one of the transgender sex workers. And for her for her attempt, she was bitch slapped. You're not allowed to be here, Lorinda. So that was all they got. Well, I would like to introduce a new segment here called These Are Their Stories. And I have a little information about the person who played Chick, who was one of the transgender sex workers. So um, Chick was uh, is the sex worker who was the person of color. So that is Nishome Wooden. Um, Nishome was born in uh, Brooklyn in October 1969. In real life, this person is a male and only uses she when he's using his drag persona. But Club Kid in the 80s um, developed his drag queen persona, Mona Foot with his friend and former roommate, Lady Bunny. Uh, Wooden credits RuPaul as a mentor. Oh! He learned how to apply makeup from RuPaul when they were doing an off-Broadway show called My Pet Homo. So as Mona Foot, Wooden hosted the um, weekly drag competition Mona Foot Star Search at a New York gay bar called Barracuda. And the New York Times cites this as a likely inspiration for RuPaul's Drag Race. Wooden also had a band called The Ones, which was an electric dance music group. They had a hit single, a song called Flawless. And this is based on a movie they were in with uh, Robert De Niro, also called Flawless. I had never heard of it before. I haven't either, too. Nishome expressed, um, like, during points in his life, he was tired of the Mona Foot persona and wanted to be, like, known more as himself. So he kind of fizzled out doing performances. But then um, in 2018, he revived the character for this um, event called Wigstock. And he performed as Wonder Woman. Unfortunately, um, Nishome passed March 23rd, 2023, likely from complications due due to COVID-19. No. Oh, no. Is really sad. So he passed the same year as our friend from last episode, Gary Klar. Um, As Mona Foote, she made a lasting impact on the New York City nightlife. And I find it really tragic. According to Wikipedia, he was HIV positive. So I just, it really sucks. I think he survived one epidemic to be taken down by another. So R.I.P. Nishome Wooden. R.I.P. Mona Foote. He appears to have been, like, very beloved. Um, I was reading a bunch of articles after his passing where people were like, this person was an icon. Oh, absolutely. Elle and Liv are pissed by the lack of development, uh, and so they decide to go talk to D'Angelo from Vice down at... They kind of just know where he's going to be. They're like, he's probably at lunch now, and they just head out to, once again, a random diner that apparently cops congregate out. Dun-dun! Dun-dun! So they find Officer to Asshole at this diner and they ask him about Carmel. And it turns out he knew about the case and he didn't mention it because they scoffed at him because he was being a jerk. Yeah, he goes, they were like, why didn't you mention Carmel sooner? And he was like, you didn't seem to want my help. And it's like, uh, we didn't want your help leering at a dead woman's bottom that whole time. But like, it would have been useful to know literally anything else. And he was kind of, what the fuck? He was kind of like, sorry. So then they ask him about Lorinda. He's still not helpful. But then the cop next to him pipes up and he's like, oh, Lorinda Gutierrez. Yeah, he says, you collared Linda Gutierrez two months ago. Um, and this person is the asshole's partner, apparently. And his name is Officer Ridley. 
Um, and Officer Ridley makes a note that he's been on desk work. He's been working on the force for a long time uh, in and out, but that he's been on desk work for the past two months, which is kind of like, okay. Oh, yeah, that's probably why Officer to Asshole had the rookie. So they show Officer Ridley, um, the victim from the other night, and he says he doesn't recognize her and that maybe she's new. People keep saying that. Maybe she's new. So then Officer to Asshole's like, well, don't you guys have sensitivity training to go off to? And I was like, buddy. Oh, you think this is sensitive? Can I also note, I forget the name of the actor who plays him, but I swear to God he played someone named Tony Olives in a movie. (laughs) (laughs) It might be in the Spike Lee movie Summer of Sam. Don't quote me on that, because that came up during my research, but (laughs) so Tony Olives. Um, so here's a random throwaway scene I decided, and I go and I'd watch this like two or three times, and I thought to myself, we did not fucking need this scene. I loved this scene. I thought it was so cute. You did? Oh, okay. See, I'm just like negative. Dun dun. We're at a rock climbing gym, most likely Chelsea Piers, and Liv and Jeffries are rock climbing to some like rocker music, and Liv is telling Jeffries about how what a dick to assholes being and how he called their victim NHI. And Jeffries, in true Jeffries style, <laughs> responds, next time I hear a comment like that, I'm going to cut someone's balls off. <laughs> so, honestly, what she just said is pretty much all that happens in the scene. They literally go up the wall and then belay down, and that's it, and have this conversation. I could have watched an hour of this. I thought they were, like, I love that Olivia and Monique are, like, gal pals, and they go, like, rock climbing in their spare time, and they talk shit about probably all the chauvinists they run into. So, in my head, I am making this canon that Olivia and Monique have, like, once a week where they go off and do a thing, and they just talk about, like, all the really horrible shit all their male coworkers say to them all the time. And that's the spinoff I want, not fucking Law & Order L.A., You know Monique's the best, especially now that I know that she's Sagittarius. Um, She's the best friend to go out and rant to because she'll co-sign everything you say. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You could be completely in the wrong. You could be like, yeah, like, then I yelled at my boyfriend and, like, stole his car and, like, keyed his car. And she'd be like, you only keyed his car? Why didn't you bust up all all the windows? And you're like, you're right, Monique. I should have done that. She'd be like, I'll tell you what I would have done that time. Would have taken a switchblade, carved my name in the trunk, and then farted on his windshield. <laughs> and she would have said it with like a sultry kind of growl, and then she would have belayed down. You would have been like, I should have done that. Would have been like, why am I not sexy as her when I say the word fart? <sighs> dun dun! Now we are at the ME's office, and the ME confirms that it was the plastic bag that killed her, and the blows to the head were just overkill. No rape, and she's also negative for any um, drug misuse. To which they all go, huh. Now, here, the Emmy goes, she had perfect teeth and a stomach, and basically said a stomach filled with healthy food. And she goes, huh, a health-conscious hooker. I thought she was a little disrespectful about the, about the victim, and I right. long for the days when Tamara Tooney comes in here with her wise, respectful ass. Ah, modern-day police work. Modern-day police work. Dun-dun! Dun-dun! So I titled this segment fucking court again i just don't care <laughs> i fucking hate these scenes They're so i loved confusing. i loved this episode this this scene if you want to run through it really quickly i'm here but sure fuck it every single one of these courtroom scenes 
The person in trouble does some shit that is so clearly illegal and wrong. And every single time the DAs are acting like they've done nothing wrong. And it's just wild to me how any human being could like pretend even in a fictional sense. So Munch is being cross-examined by yet another new ADA. Um, And she sticks around. She comes back in a couple more episodes later. But they never name her. No, they don't name her. So Munch tells everyone. Um, that a woman reported to SVU that she went to a doctor. And to this, I say, what kind of doctor? Um, But she wanted a prescription for Prozac. And instead, this doctor diagnosed her with hysteria, which I immediately said, huh? Because if you know anything about the diagnosis hysteria, it's just massive gaslighting. And it was what doctors, I put in quotations, used to describe women's general uh like us just freaking out you know so us having emotions or being on our period was usually referred to as hysteria and nothing else i'm feeling pretty hysterical hearing this description (laughs) apparently this doctor in the scene diagnosed this patient with hysteria and he told her to in munch's words uh disrobe put her feet up in some stirrups and think of david hasselhoff on baywatch but apparently this doctor, who I'm, I'm going to say is supposed to be a psychiatrist, was telling his patients when they would come in for actual treatment, they were diagnosed with hysteria and they need to be cured using traditional methods of treatment for hysteria. And back in the day, as per Munch, that was basically these doctors would masturbate the patient until they orgasmed. Now, I had heard of this, so I was like, yeah, Munch, I know. I was I was just annoyed that he was lecturing to me about it. I was like, yeah, I know, Munch. Can we, do we have to really spend time with this fucking guy? Munch goes on to say that in 19, until 1952, hysteria was a common diagnosis for women who were being, well, I'm saying this, being gaslit by men. Um, and that the medical treatment was hysterical paroxysis, which translates, he said, to orgasms. I will say my, the one laugh I got from this scene is, um... The word she just said, could you, could you please repeat that for our people? Hysterical paroxysis. The sonographer goes, could you repeat that? Or could you spell that for me? He goes, O-R-G-A-S-M. But the stenographer go, like, types out and goes, oh. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was like the only thing I liked about that scene. I thought that was funny. Oh. <laughs> and then the, the DA screams. So the defense attorney goes, he objects loudly and says, do you know that historically it was considered the physician's duty to alleviate these symptoms? What the fuck? And I like how the defense attorney says that like he's proving a point. He's like, uh, yeah, but wasn't he allowed to be doing that? And it's like, no, because then the DA interrupts Munch again. And she says, is this practice considered legal nowadays? And Munch says, no, it is not. It's considered illegal under the law. And so is videotaping it because this guy videotaped it. I mean, that was the real kicker. But that's why I was like, why are we here? This is clearly assault. Why are we in court? I know. It feels like they're trying to like teach us a lesson. I'm like, I know that's wrong. Right. (laughs) Let's move along, people. That's why these scenes are weird. It's like, I think they're meant to show us how dynamic the the, the sex crimes unit is. But it's like, no, it's fucking insane. Like, how are we in court right now? We should be in jail. Well, I do believe the doctor gets sent to jail because he kind of gives a sheepish little, oh, shit, when Munch mentions that it was, this should have been settled out of court. This was stupid. 
I'm done. Done, done. <laughs> done, done. Back at the station, and Jeffries reveals that they have a missing persons report that matches the Jane Doe. And the missing persons report is for Tracy Henderson from Bronxville, and she's been missing for two days. Yes. So we head over to um, Tracy's parents' home, and um, Elliot and Olivia immediately note that they are in a nice neighborhood. And as soon as they knock on the door and the mom sees them, she knows and screams for the dad. They both look so young. I really liked the mom. I I liked her acting. I thought it was great. She was like my favorite part. The parents, I thought, both did excellent jobs. They let um, Elliot and Olivia know that Tracy is majoring in cultural studies at Columbia University. And she's a sophomore. She also volunteers at a literacy center. So she's like literally just like a wonderful. She's a stand up kid. Yeah. Yeah. And Elliot shows Tracy's father um, the Polaroid of Tracy's body. And her mother begins to sob immediately upon seeing it. Uh, Liv tells him that Tracy was attacked in Times Square. And um, Elliot reluctantly tells him that Tracy was dressed rather provocatively. And that they believe that her attacker was targeting prostitutes. It's now Stabler's turn to be bitch slapped. Yes. So Tracy's mother walks up to him, lip quivering, stares Elliot in the face and gives him a clean, crisp slap across the face. I really like that slap. I don't know why. I, re- I rewinded it a few times. Not because I liked seeing Elliot get slapped. I just thought it was a really crisp slap. I mean, in general, I don't think you should slap officers of the law. But honestly, man, you couldn't have waited and kind of asked around and figured out. You had to insinuate that she was a sex worker. That's what I'm saying. They're treating the, the whole, the fact that she was wearing like what I would say club attire. They're like, she was dressed provocatively and like a prostitute. I'm like, maybe take a look at the fashions before you start assuming that a short skirt means prostitute. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Back at the station. So Munch and Cassie are giving Stabler some flack about getting hit. And they're kind of joking around about it. And I'm like, a distraught mother just struck him because he insinuated his daughter was a sex worker when she did not believe that to be true. We're really going to laugh about it? So they're broing out about this slap, and Olivia just kind of, like, comes out, and she's like, I think we need to reassess the sex worker angle. And I'm like, you fucking think? Yeah, uh, like, really, seriously. There has never been any indication that this woman is a sex worker. That, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's like, they heard some idiot say he smelled it on her, and they're like, all right, yeah, well, she probably is a sex worker. Yeah, she's wearing a short skirt and they found her in Times Square, notoriously a sex workplace. Well, no, it got sweeped, so it yeah. actually wasn't. Yeah, you're right. That should have been their first fucking clue. This is why we need to be on the job. Yeah, this is why now we would have been wrong about the dad part this time around, but we could have gotten through that. <laughs> we could have. So Munch mocks them for basically assuming that she is not a prostitute. And he says literally like, oh, because she's from a good family. What was Miss Goody Two-Shoes doing wearing Rock My World pumps, a micro mini, and a belly shirt? And Jeffries jumps in immediately and she goes, it was hot that night. That's what I'd wear. So, of course, Munch is like, ooh. But I was, really? We're going to do that kind of victim blaming? And also, Jeffrey goes, it, it was hot that night. Isn't it October? It is October, but it does get a little warm around here sometimes. It can. Okay. All right. Now, Munch was into the fact that she said that's what she would wear. Olivia's like, so she was asking for it. Is that what you mean? And Elliot kind of goes, all I'm saying is I wouldn't let my daughter walk around like that. Okay, A. And Olivia's just like, okay, sure, Jan. And Elliot's like, what does that mean? 
Yeah, he gets this look <laughs> on his face like he wants to throw like the typewriter at her. So Benson and Jeffries just kind of look at him like he's a fucking idiot, which he is. He is an idiot. Because again, they're acting like this girl was 12 years old. She was like, if she was a sophomore in college, she was at minimum 20 years old. She was 19 or 20. So, and then Munch says, oh my God. And I quote, Oh my God. uh, Back to the dead whore. What the, what is up with him that episode? What is wrong with you? Because regardless, regardless if she was or was not, and she was not a sex worker, what is the fucking problem? Him and Jeffries get into it, but it's just, does he hate women? I think he might. And she kind of gets at that because Jeffries goes, have some respect. And Munch says that he respects hookers because at least they get their money up front, unlike ex-wives who take it through the back way. And so that's when I think it was Olivia or Jeffrey says, so women are all whores. And he goes, I don't know all women. I think he might be a meninist. I am left this episode not knowing how to feel about Munch. And I don't even know what the show wants me to feel about Munch. No, that's a good question. It's, it's really weird. You're being so incredibly vicious towards this person that you don't even know who's a dead woman. And again, a like you said. A dead baby. She's like 19. A dead baby. And all she's done wrong at this point is be dead. You know, and it's like, what do they want us to think of him? Like what? I really would love to interview the first season to everyone and be like, what did you guys want us to really feel about Munch? Because like these are gross scenes. I think even by 1999 standards. Yeah, it's. It really took me out of the episode. And I mean, I guess we can continue to track that. The Munch I remember is occasionally. Abrupt and maybe a little sarcastic, but never downright insulting to the victim. So it's going to be interesting, I think, to transition into season two with his new partner, Ice-T. So that was very jarring. And Craig and all of a sudden busts in is like, children. And he, so he breaks up the fight. It's not really a fight. Jeffries and Munch are just going at it. But he has learned his info and her rap sheet. Craig is also very dismissive of sex workers here. He mm. goes, you need to go find out if this attack really happened or it was just a figment of her crack pipe yeah i wrote geez <laughs> i'm just left this i'm left to this this is why i liked the benson jeffrey scene of them rock climbing together where i didn't have to hear cragen's drug shaming munch's disgusting views on women or even stabler in his like holier than that well my daughter wouldn't be dressed like that yeah That's why i'm I liked a dad the rock climbing rock climbing scene that was nice. This this is a lot. Cragen asks who wants to volunteer to go talk to um, Lorinda or try to find Lorinda. Munch tries to volunteer and then Jeffries wisely cuts him off because no the fuck you're not going to talk to a potential victim with that attitude, Munch. Yes, thank God she takes that. And then Stabler says that um, Tracy's parents told them about a boyfriend. So him and Olivia are going to go check that out. Right. And I just want to just go on the record and say that they did not tell him about a boyfriend uh, on camera. It must have happened yeah. off camera because I rewatched that scene twice. And um, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. No. <laughs> dun, dun. Dun, dun. Ooh, we on Wall Street now. Ooh, we fancy. That's where you get the best drinks after work because Wall Street guys like to pay for things. Anyway. Well, Elliot and Olivia approach um, the alleged boyfriend. His name is <laughs> Dennis Caulfield. He's definitely a hedge fund bro. So I 
I had not seen this episode in a really long time. This scene opens. I go, well, he did it. Look at his face. <laughs> this guy totally did it. He I thought the that too. Marmiest Wall Street finance bro that has ever explained Franny Mae and Freddie Mac to some bored 20-year-old at a bar. I think he was talking about he like when they walked in, he was like, and that's when I told him, hold him, not fold him. It was something stupid <laughs> like that. So we mentioned last episode how some people don't know how to act around cops. Dennis does. He's like, oh, oh, oh no, Tracy died. Oh, that's why she that's why she never called me back. And I was like, this is how I would act around cops, too. Um, and he mentioned that he and Tracy, the night that she died, had tentative dinner plans. Um, tentative being the operative word, because she never ended up calling. He didn't follow up with Tracy after he didn't hear from her, because he assumed that she was very busy, what with her being like an amazing person who volunteers and stuff. And Dennis ended up watching the Yankees game with his friend Bill Griswold, another fucking finance bro name. <laughs> um, and he, is, he goes, I won 50 bucks, which, okay. <laughs> like, cool. Olivia actually seems to buy everything he says, and she's like, well, can we have his number to follow up? And he immediately produces this cu- guy's card, hands it over, and they're like, do you think she was seeing anyone else? And he's like, I don't think so. Maybe she went out with the girls, or maybe she went out with someone from the literacy center that she volunteers at. Her mom had previously mentioned this literacy, literacy center. He even doubles down when they said, um, do you think she was seeing anyone else? He goes, no, no, no one else. And that kind of made me feel safe with him. I was like, oh, my God, like, this is her man. This is her boyfriend, you know, which is hard. It's hard to get someone to say that about you nowadays. You seem like a stand up guy. You and Bill Griswold, who sounds fake, but. You're right. Wait a second. Wait. Oh, I wrote fake next to Bill Griswold's. Oh, I'm thinking of Clark Griswold. I was like, wait, what's Chevy Chase's name in all of those movies? It's Clark. Okay, whatever. (laughs) So, yes. So Dennis sends them off with his uh, friend Bill Griswold's card, and he says that they should check in with Tracy's friends over at the Literacy Center. She might have gone clubbing with the girls. Again, clubbing in Times Square. Not really something one does, but okay, maybe back then. Dun, dun! So they head over to this Literacy Center, and the lady at at this... They go to the literacy center and the woman at the literacy center (laughs) says everybody loves Tracy. Yeah, Um, not a bad word to say about her. She's got no enemies. She says, is there anyone that hasn't shown up like the last few days? And she goes, oh, yeah, there's this guy named Travis. He hasn't been around in a little while. And she gives them his info. And while they're there, Elliot kind of looks around and um, he notices that this area that the literacy center is in is only like six blocks from where Carmel was found with dead with the bag over her head. Yes. So they also find out that Travis Hall, right? Is that his name? Travis Hall? Yes. Travis oh, Hall. Travis. I just gave him a first name. He is a parolee out of Rikers. So obviously that piques their interest. So they go over to Travis's apartment and his landlord escorts them up, up the stairs. Her name is Mrs. Overton and I love her. Yeah, she says, uh, whatever Travis did, you think Travis did, he probably did it. So she's like, but what did he do? And they won't answer. She goes, that bad, huh? So when they get up to Travis's apartment door, immediately they mention that there's a stench. It's pretty bad. They don't even bother knocking. I don't think I just bust down the door at that point. Yep. And uh, Travis is dead. And they're like, okay, well, he's got an alibi. And Olivia is somehow able to look at somebody who's dead and go, probably a week. I know. I was like, wait till our cute friend, the medical examiner's assistant, shows up again. But no, I guess not. 
he is dead and he did not kill Tracy. Um, and I guess we don't care how he died because dun dun, we don't find out. I think it's an OD. I think it's supposed to be because there's like a mattress on the floor. So I think we're supposed to believe it was like an OD. So the team's going over the timeline basically thus far of the victims and the suspects. So they've got everyone's names written on the bar, the main players up there. They've got Carmel, the first victim of the bad killer, who, to reiterate, was found the year before, six blocks away from Tracy's Literacy Center, uh, with a bag over her head, kilt. Lorinda, who is the missing sex worker, uh, who was violently attacked also a year ago. Or wait, am I confusing myself? Was Carmel found two months before? I was hoping you could clarify. All I I know Lorinda was attacked a year ago. I'm not exactly sure when Carmel was attacked. But I think Carmel was attacked because now I think I'm confusing two months with a year. So Carmel, I think, was found two months before. Lorinda, the missing sex worker uh, who was violently attacked, was attacked a year ago. So Carmel had blunt force trauma to her head once again, and she was asphyxiated by the garbage bag and left for dead. The same happened to Tracy. Jeffrey says that Carmel's autopsy showed dust, surgical dust from surgical gloves on her body. And I don't know how they determined this, but apparently it was determined that these were police issued gloves. How the fuck? They believe the crime scene was contaminated by the police on the scene because of this dust. Yeah. So I, I, again, they're like, it must have been the police, I guess. And I'm like, I guess so. Sure. Um, they're like, it had to have been. So Liv walks up in that moment and just walks up to the board and erases Travis Hall's name. And Cragen's like, why? And uh, she says, because Travis Hall died a week before Tracy was murdered. So they need to find Lorinda, basically, is what Olivia says. Jeffrey's had no luck. And Cassidy, for the first time in this whole episode, and perhaps this entire season, remember when I said <laughs> um, Cassidy has a good moment? Here it is. Cassie, Cassidy suggests that perhaps she's in this other area that sex workers frequent after they kind of got shuffled out of, I'm sorry, Times Square, and then perhaps the meatpacking district. And now it seems that perhaps they're in this new area. He knows that because he had to canvas this area for another case. Yes. and. So just for um, geography's sake, uh, meatpacking, Gansevoort is in the meatpacking district. Oh, it's okay. off of Well, because I don't even know. He said the meat market, which I, if, the, if there is one down there, I don't know. But that's what, again, I'm shocked because that's where, that's where young college girls go. Oh, we were down by that. Remember we went to Brass Monkey oh, in April? Yes. That is where that is. So where oh. we got. Right. So side note, guys. In April, Brittany and our friends visited uh, for a little girls weekend, and we went to Brass Monkey over in the meatpacking district, and we were on their rooftop, and a gentleman in a high-rise building flashed us all. He stood in the nude above us. We were Law & Order Special Victims Unit in the meatpacking district. And man, was that man packing meat. I still have the picture. And it was man, <laughs> it was not especially heinous. It was not especially <laughs> He himself did not look very cute, but he did look pleased to be up there and showing us anyhow. So that's where we were. Dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> dun So um, Olivia and Elliot literally like walk down the street and see a um, sex worker soliciting a John. And they're like, oh, hey, that's her. And it is uh, Salinas uh, Leva. I hope I'm saying that correctly, from Orange is the New Black. Yes! And she played uh, Gloria Mendoza in Orange is the New Black, in case you haven't seen it in a while. And she apparently did, she was a detective in Law & Order proper throughout the early thousands. 
Oh, I didn't know that. So she's she's kind of um she's in that world. She's in our world. Well, it seems like once you're on one of them, they'll put you in the other one. Or even sometimes like a few years later in their same show. Yeah, you could be you could be a rapist in one episode and an ADA in the next. Just dream big. Dream big. You can be a sex worker in one and then Amanda Rollins years later. Right. Oh my gosh, I forgot. <laughs> but we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. Meanwhile, Gloria from Orange is the New Black sees them, throws something in a dumpster, and then hauls ass away from them. And I have to say, I don't know how she ever fucking thought she was going to outrun them. She is in the tightest skirt and these like sky high heels. And I was like, sweetie, what are you doing? Just be like, yeah, you got me. And she was also wearing these really horrendous um, yellow tights, which I hated for her. I hated that for us. Aw. Well. (laughs) Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Back at the precinct, she is describing her attack. Um, the attacker shined a light in her eye and she, she puts her hand up to demonstrate. Smacked her over the head. She's disoriented. He gets behind her with the bag. She's clawing at his hands, but they're slippery. It's like he's wearing, I think she says doctor's gloves. Yes, she says like doctors, like uh, gloves mm-hmm. like doctors. And Elliot is asking that, they're asking her kind of over and over again. They're like, are you sure? Is this what happened? And she tearfully asks them, why did he hurt someone who matters? And I'm like, yeah. I thought the actress was just lovely. That, I mean, yeah. Why are you working this so hard? Did he attack someone who matters? That's what we were all kind of thinking, you know, because it's like they're, they're, this happened to her a year ago and nobody cared. And now they're asking her over and over and over and over. And she's like, why? <laughs> why do you care suddenly? Can't be because of me. You know, like I was out here and no one cared. So. So. Elliot and Olivia go back to the, I don't know what to call that room. Is that called like the bullpen? I think it is. It's like the general station area. Well, well, that's what I'm calling it. I'm going to double check that before I keep using that term. Sound like an idiot. But they act out the attack for the squad. And Cragen immediately picks up on the gloves and makes the connection to Carmel. And Jeffrey says, yes, but we determined that those were police issued gloves. So Munch has an epiphany in this moment. And he delivers it as though it's not an epiphany. He delivers it as though he's been sitting on this very obvious detail forever. And they're just finally realizing. He goes, hello. And then he stands up, grabs a flashlight and says, are you sure Lorinda said that she shielded her eyes like this? And he demonstrates by putting his hand above his forehead over his eyes, not directly in front of his eyes. And so Olivia says, yes, we went over it over and over and over again. So Munch takes the flashlight. Shines it at her from like chest level and he shines it at her right in the eyes and she and Olivia takes her hand and puts it in front of her face, in front of her eyes and her nose like that. So he goes, OK, civilian. And then he takes the flashlight, flips it up over his head. So he's holding the flashlight above his head, pointing down at Olivia. She takes her hand and shields her eyes using her hand above her forehead, above her eyes. And the difference is, and I picked up on this immediately, thank you, Law and Order SVU, a civilian would shine a flashlight from basically their chest or their waist. But a cop, a trained cop, knows to hold the flashlight above because that's how, if they need to, basically, they can take the flashlight and then cold clock somebody as a, as a weapon. This scene was excellently done. I had chills. They're playing this kind of like, tense string under munch it's like if you watch law and order you know this sound it's mm, yes i had chills oh that was so good oh and it made me attracted to munch 
brilliant police work, brilliantly acted, kudos all around for all the shit I've given episodes one through three. I was enjoying myself. This took it to another level. This is the kind of shit I love about Law & Order SVU. This scene is what brought me back to that feeling because that's like that moment you wait for where it's that smoking gun. And Mm -hmm. I feel like the last three episodes, we really didn't have that smoking gun moment. You know, like we we had it. It was there, but it wasn't like, this was very much like you're like, oh, like you said, like the chills, the buildup, the whew. So that's it. They, they know they are looking now for a cop. So Elliot and Olivia go back to talk to the sex workers. They return to the streets. They return to the streets. This time they want to know which cops go extra hard on them when they arrest them. And the sex workers laugh and they're like, all of them. Are you fucking stupid? Another prostitute standing off to the side says she knows another guy uh, who essentially busted her and she wasn't even resisting or doing anything. And he almost dislocated her shoulder uh, while he was busting her. And they're like, who is it? And she goes, is he going to know that it was me? Which again, terrifying, terrifying that that's even a detail that they think to include because it means it's based in some version of reality where retaliation exists. And they reassure her, nope. And if you tell us who it is, we will make sure he never hurts any of you again. And this prostitute names the perp as well the perp who almost dislocated her shoulder as officer de asshole oh shit and i believe one of them mentions a cop spit a toothpick in their face and every time we have seen officer de asshole he is munching on a toothpick so now it seems that he is probably the suspect so they take this information back to cragen they've pulled his record he's not dirty he's not clean he's got kind of just this meh record where he's done some stuff but nothing egregious but he seems to have mostly done good work abuse of his badge and milking overtime were two of yeah. the which abuse of the badge is probably more sorted no it's probably way more sorted than they're letting on like craigan literally after that sentence goes okay so not clean but not dirty i'm like all right so fuck abuse of a badge i guess whatever so craigan goes oh he's out of the three one Briscoe used to work there. Dun dun. Briscoe's here again. So they're at a steakhouse now. And Cragen thinks he's being sneaky, but he's like, yeah, you know, uh, oh, do you ever know like a guy named Officer? De- I don't even remember his real name. Crap. What is his real name? D'Angelo, like the sandwich. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so Officer D'Angelo and Briscoe? like completely goes left of center and they start sharing these wild ass drinking stories terrifying drinking stories from the 70s he goes the 70s were a blur and then craigan agrees and tells a story about how he was drinking in atlantic city new jersey one minute and then woke up in mexico the next briscoe's laughing and he's like yeah one time i woke up looking at the the end of my service revolver i was like gentlemen um okay right fuck they are giggling over these first of all can you imagine being a woman you're partying in atlantic city one minute and the next minute you're in mexico i would i would i don't even know you would never see me again because i'd be too ashamed i'd be like i cannot explain how i got here and i don't want to know so now we know why they're both in recovery oh yeah i forgot that lenny briscoe doesn't drink good for them i did not realize that till the end of this scene um craigan tries to bring it back around to officer to asshole and Briscoe's like, yeah, I I know you're trying to interrogate me. What do you want to know? So Craigan's like, okay, yeah, sorry. Like, what can you tell me about this guy? And Briscoe says, he's a blowhard and he's kind of a bastard, but he's, there's nothing wrong with him. 
Which I disagree, but whatever. And then he tells this story the year before they were at some type of like police golf tournament, which to which I say, where would you go to Long Island for that? And <laughs> there's no fucking golf, but they're at a police golf tournament and um, D'Angelo and his partner Ridley were doing pretty well. But apparently D'Angelo got upset after missing a ball or whatever the fuck happens in golf. And he threw his putter in anger. So everyone was like, huh, that's weird. Like what an overreaction. And Craig goes, okay, yeah, so what? Uh, is that a bad thing? And Briscoe goes, no, that wasn't weird, but the partner's reaction was weirder. And so apparently Ridley was doing really well, sinking all of his balls or all of his holes or whatever the fuck happens in golf. But every time he did really well, the crowd would go crazy and cheer for him, but he wouldn't have any reaction. He would just stand there stone-faced. But the one time he missed a ball, he freaked out, and like destroyed a ball washer. And when they said that originally, I thought the ball washer was a human being. Me too, because I don't know what I was like, what's a ball washer? So apparently it's like a fountain where they wash balls. But when they said that at first, I pictured when Happy Gilmore was beating the tar out of the- <laughs> It's like when Bob Hope beats the shit out of Happy Gilmore. <laughs> I like that I kind of know what a golf assistant is, and I could sit here and think of the word, but I don't. Oh, it's a caddy. A caddy, right. I was going to say, I really don't care enough to think what, what it is, but it did pop up, so. Golf is confusing, and I'll never understand or care about it. Not unless you pay me, and even then, it will be a half-assed effort. My husband wants me to go so bad, I bought, like, a cute little golf skirt. I really don't want to go. I... Oh my god, wait. That's cute, though. As long as he doesn't expect you to, like, be good. I don't think he does, but I have that weird anxiety from, like, being in gym class, and just <gasps> when I'm bad at sports or anything that involves hand-eye coordination and people are around me and seeing me failing like he me and his family went to a um a top golf when his family lived in north carolina and i did so badly and it's just like it's basically just hitting balls at an open field and i did so badly i had to go in the bathroom and cry not because anyone was being mean to me not because but they were just like oh like oh what if you try hitting it like this and i just got i was like i just want to sit here and have bud light and not do this that was me too. Ugh. I forget where I did that. We went like golfing for fun at Chelsea Piers, but like it was the same thing where apparently I was so bad that people started trying to give me tips. And like, I'm just not like that. Like if you're doing shitty, I'm like, you're doing great, sweetie. Have fun. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> you know, like it's like, it doesn't bother me if you're not doing well, as long as we're having fun. But no, I did the same thing. Like I was getting just progressively so angry that I wasn't hitting the ball and then it was becoming like a joke and then it just made it worse. Yeah. I- I just don't have good hand-eye coordination. My brain does not talk to my body the way I want it to. And that's just... You know what? I'll say it. You're not good at rich people's sports. And that's not your fault, okay? It's not my fault. (laughs) I'm not good at tennis. And I'm not good at golf. And I'm not good at skiing. I am good at horseback riding. But that's a one-off. Well, I like to ski. So we each have our... We each have, like, our thing. But, like, we're... Right. Also, I'm not great at skiing. I just like to do it. I think we talked about it in college where I was like, I will go skiing in quotations. And by that, I mean, I will sit in the lodge and make sure that everyone's purses are not stolen. Yeah, you can like opera ski and not ski. You can just have like a little cocktail and sit by the fire and look cute. Knowing me, you know, I would get too drunk and lose everyone's purses. (laughs) (laughs) I would would have traded them for like some spare cigarettes. I've been like, I don't know. You're wearing someone else's winter hat, and it's like a gigantic, like, Russian winter hat, and we're just like, Paige, what happened? And they're like, wait, Paige, um, the concierge just said we've all been kicked out of the hotel? And I'm like, uh, oh, uh, yeah, that, that dumb bitch. 
<laughs> so I couldn't smoke by the fire, but the fire is already smoking, so. <laughs> dun dun! <laughs> well, from these two lushes to the lushes that used to be Briscoe and Craig, and someone comes by and asks for a drink and they both order water, which is what we should do. Back at the the station, Kragen hands Olivia and Elliot an internal affairs file on Ridley, and it's apparently very sneaky because he tells them not to ask where he got it from. And so Olivia and Elliot are going through it. He has had complaints from sex workers. These were dropped. He had domestic violence charges from his ex-wife also dropped. And Kragen's like, you gotta look into him. You gotta talk to every person that's ever got this guy's ever met. You gotta talk to his teachers. You gotta talk to his priest. You gotta find everybody who ever talked to him. Go back to the first fart sandbox he ever farted in. I was yeah. like, Jesus Christ. And apparently the first sandbox he ever farted in was in Kew Gardens. And having been to Kew Gardens, my God, that's a ways. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. We're now in Kew Gardens. Here we are in Kew Gardens. My God, it's a ways. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Elle and Liv are speaking to two of Ridley's old roommates, uh, old roommates, old neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> His old college buddies. His old college buddies. No, it's like this sweet older couple that like the wife is kind of like you can tell nosy and like the husband's kind of a grump, but they seem really sweet. Yeah, the husband says that Ridley is basically a jerk and that he doesn't feel bad for him, which I would love to know more about, but apparently we don't get to know more about. No, because the wife, like, immediately jumps in and is, is like, sympathetic. She's like, well, you know what he went through. It, it's, like, understandable that he was, like, troubled. Right, and it was because um, Ridley's mother was a prostitute, and sometimes when he would come home from school or just, I guess... In general, she would kick him out of the apartment, lock him out, and just leave him with a box of saltines while she was entertaining her clients. So that's terrible for a child. But as an adult, I just want to submit that I I have fucked up a box of saltines for dinner before. There is nothing better. And you got to get the um, bad for you peanut butter, not the good for you peanut butter. It's got to be like Jif or something. Mm. Just sitting down and smearing saltines with peanut butter and tossing them back. I could eat a whole fucking sleeve. Now, you see, what I really like to do is I like to take at least three or four saltines, shove them all in my mouth at one time, and just really, just really chew on them. Wow. <laughs> Your poor Roomba. <laughs> just really chew on Jesus them. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, no. Roomba, she doesn't get to have the crumbs. I get down on the floor and I eat those crumbs. I love Lick saltines. them up. <laughs> love them. And my dad has actually recently got into something called Zestas, which are Kellogg's brand saltines. And they are a little saltier and a little stiffer to the point where I thought they were stale, but that's just Zesta. They sound kind of delicious. And I now I want to, I feel like I might put cheese on a Zesta, but peanut butter on a saltine. (gasps) That's a good, no, that's really Mm. good. Because again, Zestas are just that much saltier where like a sharp cheddar Mm. would be like excellent. Oh my God. No, I really. My my mouth is watering. (laughs) I'm a sick woman. I want to go grab some saltines after this. Sounds amazing. (laughs) But for for this young boy, it is not so amazing. Awful. Awful to have saltines for dinner. He's out all night. But yeah, that's actually what like the neighbor's like super upset about. She's like, nothing but saltines for dinner. And then dun dun, like nothing else we get from them. Well, now we know why Ridley, if Ridley did this, why he hates prostitutes. It's because his mother was, was one, but also just mean. Dun dun. So back at the station, Liv and Elle are talking about how Ridley is a woman-hating loner who basically kept himself at low-level police jobs for the last 30 years, which probably added to his inferiority complex. 
Um, but I would argue they were kind of saying that he it probably made him mad that he stayed a low level police officer. But I would argue that if you're a higher level police officer, it's harder for you to get away with things like killing humans. I would guess that he kept himself at this low level. I mean, I've seen documentaries about what police officers were like in New York in the 70s. <laughs> I feel like oh if boy. he wanted to move up, move up, he could. Oh, also, sorry, throwaway end of the scene is that Elliot says he's got to go kick around some soccer balls with Kathleen, which I'm sure sucks and he's not looking forward to. And when he leaves, Lynn gets, Liv gets all sexy, like with a sexy look in her eye and takes a picture. I think it's of Carmel and pins it up on the bulletin board and then just stares at it. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Stabler's backyard. A oh, sad, my God. I can't even place. talk about this scene. Are you okay with me just going through this scene quickly and saying that basically he's supposed to be trying to help Kathleen play soccer and he just basically makes all these weird metaphors about like defending her virginity like a goal. It's kind of, it's, it's definitely sexist. It's kind of weird. And it just ends with Kathleen being fucking hilarious. And she goes, dad, I'm a virgin. Okay. <laughs> and she like kicks a ball at him. Scene. But no, feel free to chime in. Literally. No, that was it. It was basically... He was trying to kick the ball to her. She was missing because she's still depressed about her friend being pregnant and uh, or just in general being a child. And um, he's going, no, no, honey, you got to try harder. You got to defend it with your life and you got to defend from all sides. It, it, it very clunkily transitioned into defend your virginity. I deeply respected Kathleen in this moment. I feel like she should have been like, OK, dad, fuck off. I was so remiss in the very first scene. I just wanted to comment. The Stabler family has a stained glass fruit pendant lamp. Their house is (laughs) disgusting. (laughs) I have to say, the lamp is ugly, but as a lover of kitsch, I find it charming. Not in the setting of a 90s home, but in real life, I find it absolutely charming. You can have your own from Wayfair for like 400 bucks. I was like, I was like, fuck yeah. (laughs) You can have your own. You can have your own stained glass fruit pendant lamp dun 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 dun. (laughs) at the station Liv slept over in that weird room with all the beds um because she was up all night cross-referencing attacks on prostitutes that were reported to the precincts that detective detective officer ridley had been working at over the last 30 years so Liv opens a door into one of those rooms that we still don't know the names for. I'm just going to call the conference room as it would be in any other office. She opens up the conference room door that she was working in the night before, and she has on at least two bulletin boards all these pictures, probably 30 pictures, of prostitutes who were murdered over the last 30 years. And they are posed in such a way where their feet are usually kind of out in front of them and their arms are spread out to the sides a little bit like angels or, as Elliot points out, a string of paper dolls. So it's beginning to look <laughs> literally like a pattern. Oh, yeah. And she said she cross-checked um, all these precinct- precincts where um, Ridley was working to, um, to see with um, sex worker attacks at that time. And this is what she's found. It's like a very macabre scene, just kind of all these dead women laid out before them so based on all this evidence olivia's pulled together it's go time they roll up on ridley and he's uh cheerfully polishing his car out in his driveway and he greets craig and bns as they approach him from behind and two officers like they roll up on this guy 
I kind of thought they were overreacting. And then I was like, well, I guess not. I mean, to me, I'm like, well, you guys aren't prostitutes. So you're not really in danger. Well, I don't know if because he's a police officer and it's one of those cases where you need to be really sure you want maybe a ton of witnesses. Oh, good point. Yeah, that's true. I, I really don't know. I'm just pulling that on my butt. But no, that's, that's true. And, and he's also like six foot three, it looks like. So maybe that's another thing. You're exactly right. Do you am- know that? I no! looked up this actor. He is six foot three. Oh, my he is God. very I'm- tall. I can never tell on TV shows, so that was super impressive. Um, I'll just jump in and say this is Car- Garrett M. Brown. Um, he is also famous for being an Uncle Buck, um, Kick-Ass, Kick-Ass 2, I Am Number 4. He seems to have spent a lot of time being in kind of police procedurals as well. I thought he did an excellent job in this episode. He was great. May I interrupt? Who is he in Uncle Buck? I love that movie. Um, in Uncle Buck, he plays Bob Russell. I don't know who that is. I wonder if that's the dad. I said that. I'm like, I love this movie. Who is this and who is that? I mean, everyone loves Uncle Buck. You probably just haven't seen it in a million years. It's like never on. So my friend mentioned this one time uh, we were talking and she goes, oh, have you ever had a movie Uncle Buck you? And without even really needing to know what she meant, I knew what she meant. And it was that some movies you see when you're a kid, they're too intense. And like, just whatever it is, like the way it was shot, whatever's happening in the scene, it's like very intense and you just like, kind of, it's like disturbing. And I was like, I know exactly what she's talking about. And it was like, because Uncle Buck's a really, it's like a, it's a family movie, but it's also like super intense at times. Oh, like when he pulls out the axe in the trunk? Yes! It's when a movie scares you and it wasn't supposed to scare you. Is that what Changeling did to us? Changeling, I want to say I made the comparison in that moment. I was like, I think I got Uncle Buck by Changeling, but I feel like Changeling was always supposed to be disturbing and we just, well, Google wasn't what it was back then. All right. (laughs) So Ridley says, upon seeing the caravan of people, he goes, I know what this is about. And then he jokes, I won the policeman's raffle. And everyone is so scared of him. And I'm going to say that once again, it's because A, he's a murderer and B, he's six foot three and he's smiling wildly at them all. Like he's really fucking excited, which is, you know, disturbing. I just thought, I just thought he was so good because of how well he blended into the background in the original scene he's in. I feel like we neglected to mention in case people haven't picked up on it, he's the cop sitting with Officer De Asshole who says, who reminds Officer D'Angelo, um, the victim that they're talking about. He's been in another scene. Sorry. He has. We, it was implied, but if you missed that, that's what that was. And in that same scene, he took a look at Tracy's picture um, of her dead body. And he said, which at the time didn't seem that strange because everyone was saying it. She must be new, which kind of indicates it's like how the fuck would you know that i think they're saying because he's a vice cop he probably knows like all the sex workers but whatever true or because he follows <laughs> oh, them around he's a murderer <laughs> he's a murderer of prostitutes so they take his gun he goes to grab the car wax and they're like he's got another gun and he just like picks up the car wax and it's like guys it's fine i'm super happy to be arrested and he sure is He even kind of when he bends over and like puts himself on his car, he kind of almost breathes a sigh of relief. So they go back to the precinct and everyone is super freaked out by him. They're all watching him through the window like a zoo animal. And he is just staring at kind of like the paper doll string that Olivia made earlier. And he's just like, man, 
I'm so good at killing. But when you think about the type of person you need to be to kill at least 30 people over a 30 year span, like, yeah, that's, uh, that's a, that's a pretty fucking fucked up feat. So that's kind of what they're getting at with him being so proud of it is that he really put effort into this. So they walk in and he congratulates them on their police work. Uh, he says that's some great police work. And he comments that none of the idiots in Vice picked up on it over the last 30 years. Valid. But Ridley so he makes sorry. some gross comment. Oh, sorry. He just makes some gross comments about his kills, just kind of like points some of them out. And is like, oh, yeah, that one was super fun. And Elliot is just kind of disgusted and throws him a pen and paper. And he's like, you know what to do with this. And he implies that he let Lorinda get away. And uh, Olivia reminds him that Lorinda actually punched him in the nads. And that's how he got away. When she says that, he kind of does this thing where he sort of like leans in on her, like he swivels his neck and sort of leans in and just stares at her with this blank, very seagull looking look in his eyes. And then he kind of swivels back and then just like walks back to the board. And that was so disturbing. It was like two seconds of my life. And I was like, oh, oh, he is he is absolutely chilling. Just where where he started in this episode and then him in this scene here. And then he kind of swaggers over to the board and he's like, but you've given me too much credit. I didn't do this one. And he gestures to Tracy. And they're like, they're kind of saying like, don't lie to us. And he goes, I'm not lying. And I want my record to be spotless for posterity. So I think it's weird, but they don't believe him. And they go out and they say as much to Cragen. Um, But Cragen's like, Guys, let's look at the M.O. It actually kind of doesn't match up. All the other people were found in remote places. Um, Tracy was found in Times Square. Yeah, the body placement is right, but all these like other things. Like she's actually the body placement's not right. He said, look, these fucking victims are holding hands for Christ's sakes. Tracy's in the wrong position. And they're like, well, what about the bag on the head? He's like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, that seemed to be, and I did, I remember I wrote down my notes that I thought it was a little weird that they decided to kind of, like, make two, like, the bag is pretty, the bag is pretty random, like, you just have to have a bag, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, I kind of get why they're like, um, it doesn't make sense that this wouldn't be him, uh, because it is kind of random, so I thought that was a little bit of a strange sort of, like, plot flaw, and I think, just a side note, that I, I don't, so, I don't think that Ridley's character is based on a real case like of a cop killing prostitutes because the closest one i could find there are definitely cops that were killing prostitutes but not in this grand sum the way that he was but the closest thing i could find was joel rifkin who was a regular guy he wasn't a cop and he was a new york city area prostitute serial killer in the 90s um and he would do the same thing he like his victims were kind of like spread throughout the city, like somewhere in Long Island. One was in Coney Island, I think. One was off of like the Hudson. One was in the Lower East Side. So I think they might have taken from that case. But the, uh, the difference being that none of Rifkin's victims were reported missing or murdered until after he was arrested. And I think the last victim was found in his car. <laughs> so that's the only reason why they even bothered. So... Someone, I think Elliot or Cragen, start saying this the crime of Tr- Tracy's murder seems more like someone who was young, impulsive, and this was their first time killing somebody. Which, again, I was kind of like, I mean, how? They kind of pull that out of their butt. They're like, wait, 
it can't be this guy because maybe this scene seems like it was someone young and new. That's how I felt too. I was like, so we went from thinking it was like this like methodical sp- um, like pattern killer to now they're like, you know what? This seems like an immature, young, new crime and maybe someone who knew her. It's like, what? How'd you get all that from nowhere? I love this episode and I think it's really good, but I think we're right. I'm all of a sudden they're like, hey, like maybe should we look into the boyfriend? And Olivia's like, he was so nice. He had an alibi. He like totally helped us out. And Craig's like, well, was he too helpful? And Olivia's like, yeah, he did just like pull this number out of the pocket to give it to me. My best friend. I know her phone number by heart. I wouldn't have had to do a card. I'm sorry, Paige. I don't know your fucking phone I number. <laughs> I, I was going to say. Um, different time, though. Yes, different time. I do not know your number by heart. I don't even know people I've dated's phone numbers by heart. I don't know my father's phone number by heart. I only know my mom's because she was the only cell phone we had for a little while. So <laughs> I know mine, barely. Dun, 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 dun. So they go f- follow up with Bill Griswold, who is real. And he looks, he looks constipated and scared. He does. And he immediately is like, oh yeah, actually, fucking Dennis has a real girlfriend. Like she um, works for Prada. She's from Scarsdale, Arizona for no reason. From Scarsdale, Arizona. He started dating Tracy because, and he goes, he was looking for a little strange. I know. And like, again, I feel like strange is usually... I think it usually means prostitutes. Um, But in this context, I guess they met in a club. Tracy was looking all sexy and wild and Dennis managed to pick her up. Next morning, he finds out that she's very inexperienced. She is, in fact, a virgin. And now she's in love with Dennis. And also, this might have even been her first glass of wine. And you know what? Frankly, don't bring any girl back to your nice ass apartment, probably on Wall Street, if you don't want them to fall in love with you. So... He then says that Tracy, in an attempt to impress him, they did go out the other night that he had given Dennis an alibi for. And she apparently had tried her like really hardest. She dressed like extra sexy and they were going to go out. And then he just ended up walking her home. And that is why Bill gave him the alibi. So now we know those weren't even Tracy's normal clothes. She was dressing up to impress Dennis. According to Bill, Tracy, they had plans to meet, but then Dennis like... He, like, kind of bailed on her, but then, like, yeah, like, walked her home, but then he went back to... Did he end up hanging out with Bill at all, or was that just the alibi? I think that was just the alibi. Okay. Yeah. And so then Elle and Liv are walking away, and they don't buy it, and they remember at that very moment that there was a partial footprint that was casually mentioned at the very beginning uh, of the investigation, and they think that they decide they're going to go and look into this partial footprint. Yes. So they look into this partial footprint. It's a shoe from a very expensive, like, Italian leather shoe. And Olivia recognizes the name of the manufacturer. And she's like, all right, yeah, we'll we'll go over to the store and, like, we'll talk to the guy. And apparently these are limited edition shoes. They were, like, $800 and only 12 were sold in the entire city. How convenient. (laughs) Right. I know. And that's what... um, So Elle and Liv are getting the receipts from the Valenti brothers because that's who makes the shoe. um, And... Liv says basically like, well, how do we know even if we do find the receipt that he kept these shoes? Like, what if like something, what if he just got rid of them? And Elliot says, oh, no, this asshole is not going to throw out $800 shoes. They also procure a search warrant for Dennis's apartment in the city. 
So Munch and Cassidy back up a station. They dump a bunch of these nice shoes on top of Olivia's desk. And they have gotten these shoes from Dennis's city apartment. They couldn't find the shoes that they're looking for or any other advice or advice, any other evidence uh, pointing him as the Tracy's killer. Then again, out of thin air or the thin air's asshole, they happen to find a voter registration card of, for Dennis. And it's addressed, the address on the voter registration card is his childhood home, which I assume is probably somewhere in Westchester. So they book it up there. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Yes. So they book it up there. They meet um, Dennis's parents. They meet, actually, is it just his mom? Is his dad there? His dad's there. So his mom is sitting in like an armchair looking, looking like some, she's some type of sick wife or something. And they show her the picture of Tracy and they're like, oh, you've never, never met her. Well, guess what? This is Dennis's dirty little secret. And they're like, that's so weird. I like don't know why they wouldn't tell us. And they're like, well, she was... As you can tell, a woman of color, would that have been a problem? Are you guys like, are you guys fucking racist? And she's like, no, I'm not fucking racist, even though she probably is. She kind of like hesitates. They're like, would this have been an issue? She's like, uh, no. Uh, probably not. So I thought this was kind of a strange storyline to bring up at the end. I feel like that's a really big plot line to kind of just toss in at the end. Uh, Clearly the optics of a rich white guy murdering a woman of color is disgusting and right probably in some way racially motivated but it does seem to come out of nowhere at the end like they haven't discussed it this whole episode and all of a sudden they're like uh are you a racist is that why your son didn't bring her home if you're going to make that a point then it needs to be the important point that it is from the beginning and not thrown in at the end kind of like you know because again it's like yeah. this could be just about a girl she could just be a girl from a good family who went to Columbia who met a shitty guy because that's the story. Yes. So Dennis descends from the stairs and he's carrying a sport bag, which Olivia, they literally, Elliot and Liv just like jump on him. Liv grabs the bag and Dennis is like, what the hell's going on here? What is this? And that's what Elliot does his favorite thing to do at the end of each episode where he basically just starts kind of like telling us what probably happened. So he starts saying, oh, what's, what's going on, Dennis? Did your real girlfriend find out about Tracy? And was she starting to cause problems? And then he suggests Tracy refused Dennis. And that when she did that night, Dennis got angry and then got rough with Tracy and things got out of hand. And he decided to just leave her there, cast her off as though she would be considered some trash on the street. So Dennis says he kind of rolls his eyes. He goes, no, that's not true. And then Elliot hits back, what would you have been embarrassed of Tracy? Is that why? Like, is that what happened? And Dennis says, no. And his mother finds a place to kind of be like, we're not racist. And she goes, then why didn't you mention her? I liked the mom there. And then all of a sudden, Olivia just goes, Elliot, his shoes. He's wearing them. We don't even see the shoes. I think everyone's eyes just no, look they, down. No, they pan they do pan down and they show the fucking stupid ass Italian le- leather shoes on this idiot's feet. Oh, yeah, you're right. And they were ugly. I remember thinking they had a gross pattern on the top, too. And then Stabler looks at looks him in the eye and goes, nice shoes. Executive director Dick Wolf. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Wait, why did you strangle her with a, why did you asphyxiate her with a plastic bag? Did I guess you're right. It's like, where did he get the plastic bag? I mean, if you're me and a girl, you carry them in your giant diaper bag of a purse just because. 
Because the blunt force trauma was after the asphyxiation. Yes. He, I think it would have made more sense if they had him having bashed her head in and then tried to cover it up with the plastic bag. And that could have, they could have gone back and Kraken could have said the MO. He could have been like, and then she had blood force trauma to the head. She didn't die from, the, so that's weird. Too. Like they didn't need to do it that way. Right. Because it would be, it, it doesn't make as much sense if this wasn't premeditated. Why would he just, unless there's a bag running, like, which I'm not saying there can't be yeah, a I'm plastic sure there was, bag. Yeah, like, trash around. But that's a very odd heat of the moment murder weapon. So maybe it's supposed to be that he roughed her up because she wouldn't have sex with him in an alley. And then knowing that she could go to the cops and say, hey, my boyfriend, you know, tried to beat the tar out of me or tried to rape me. Maybe he panicked and did strangle her and then hit her in the head to make it look like overkill or some type of like maybe he had read about the prostitute murders that Ridley had been committing. But it was a bit of a clunky kind of tie-up. Yeah, because Olivia was the first person to make those connections. Those were not considered like a series of of assaults or, or rape, like murders. So, yeah, I think I think we found kind of like a an error in the writing. And, and that's okay because overall, I didn't think about that till we were talking right now. I'm a pretty good audience member where I'll pretty much take what you're giving me and be like, oh, okay, I'll go follow along. I thought... I will take these details and give this episode an A- because we have definitely found some plot holes. And fuck you, John Munch, you bastard. Um, but overall, I'll give it an A-. We found some plot holes. It was definitely my favorite of the four we've watched. Because again, oh my again, god. <laughs> this is the good shit. This is the good shit. And I accidentally started watching the first... Well, because I was trying to watch this one. And then fucking Peacock was like, episode five. And I'm like, no! So, I remember episode five, and I'm excited for episode five. Although, once again, I don't believe there's any rape involved. <laughs> but This is kind of the first crime they've stumbled upon that I feel like they actually should have been investigating it. This is stupid, but it's like, I'd be, I'd be really extra upset if I were Dennis's girlfriend and I found out he killed his, like, other girlfriend. So I wouldn't find out. Right. If I'd be like, yo, just cheat. Yeah. Like, don't be killing people like this. Like, that's ridiculous. Don't kill me. Don't kill her. Leave us both alone so we can go rock climbing. My last note would be, I can't believe they took the episode title, Hysteria, from the court scene. I was thinking that too. I'm trying to think of a better term. Saltines. (laughs) (laughs) Crackers. Um (laughs) <laughs> I'm about to go eat some saltines. I'm so excited. I might oh. have to venture out and go get a box of saltines because oh, a box of so jealous. You live in New York. It's like 8.30. Probably everything in New Hampshire is closed. Probably have to drive down to Boston to get some crap. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks for being our elite squad. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to uh, my incessant ramblings on... I don't even remember. Well, we'll be back next week with Season 1, Episode 5. Wanderlust. Thank you again. Bye. Bye.